and she won't be back too soon She doesn't write me and I can't sleep All I hear from her is My baby's up in a rocket machine Since she left, she ain't been seen She doesn't call me and I can't sleep All I hear from her is I wonder if Means I miss you, oh baby Means I wanna kiss you, I'm hoping that Means I love you, and she's coming down to earth again My baby's high in the stratosphere I'm so low cause I'm down here My love for her is gonna keep Till she comes back and whispers Alright, so this is one of our periodic UFO updates I want to make the point, I looked it up today so in 2017, we did a UFO show with the journalist Leslie Kane and George Norrie. We had a skeptic on. Somebody else was on, too. And at that time, and I knew that because on public radio, you back in those days, you really couldn't talk about this stuff without getting a certain kind of public radio listener mad at you. Uh, and so I got this. I found one today, this outraged comment, this shame on you is how it ended. This woman felt that we could give the skeptic too little time and the believers too much time and, and uh, in, in particular ridiculed the idea that the government would be in any way suppressing information. Uh, uh, that, I hear it is. That was irresponsible to scare people like that. The government is covering up space aliens visiting Earth. Seriously? So, so that was 2017. By the end of 2017, in December, the New York Times publishes, actually, Leslie Kane and uh, Ralph Blumenthal, I think, uh, published this big page one story about the fact that, yes, the government is aware of unidentified uh, aerial things uh, and does have a secret program <laughs> and, and to, to observe them, catalog, figure them out. Um, and since then, really, there's been just this kind of cascade of new revelations in 2020 and 2021, we start to hear about the military pilots uh, who see these things that don't behave like anything, uh, any technology known on Earth. Um, we find out more about the ways in which the government, the Pentagon specifically, has hidden uh, all of its efforts to study all this stuff. <laughs> and But in fact, it's there in their Senate committee reports and stuff. So anyway, um, and so we come to now where we've been through this whole period with the balloons, which I'm fairly confident are not UFOs, uh, but we talk about this whole subject in a completely different way now. Uh, and so with that in mind, we have some very interesting guests for you today. Diana Walsh-Pasulka will begin, a research professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. And I have to laugh at that because I had that experience too. My book was actually finished in 2017, but didn't come out until 2019. And one of the first major reviews of my book on Amazon basically is what is the same thing. They're like, how gullible this research professor who, you know, has had a career being, you know, very, you know, responsible is is doing this. And I think that's so amazing now when I look back on it, because, 
you know, I mean, now the people that had been studying it, and I didn't expect to find this to be the case, but the government has been studying these things since the 1940s. Right. So we need to back up. Your story is fascinating. And let me just kind of speed through a little bit in the interest of time, and you can correct me about details. But uh, 2011, 2012, you've been working actually on a book about purgatory. Uh, but one of the things you're noticing as you do all this work with original sources uh, is that there are, there are descriptions starting in you know maybe 1100, 1200 uh, of things that sound like aerial phenomena, things that sound like unexplanatory moving objects, unexplained moving objects. Uh, you get really interested in this, but you're still coming at it. I mean, you know, sort of a priori is the whole deal. So a priori, your position is, okay, well, I don't believe in this stuff, but but they did. And so as a religious studies scholar, I'm interested in why they believed in all that stuff. And then you went through a very personal transition as you began to research this stuff. You began to hear from the people who study it very seriously, people with scientific backgrounds. Uh, and maybe it's time at this point to mention uh, uh, this one particular group of people who um, who are scientists, who are the invisible college. And the first rule about invisible college is you do not talk about invisible college. So tell us uh, who these people are. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I was a I was a non-believer. Absolutely did not believe in any kind of UFO. Didn't even think that my research had anything to do with UFOs. Uh, UFOs being aerial phenomena that we can't identify as something that we created. OK, something that's not of Earth. OK. And so um, it was a huge shock to me uh, when I was approached by people in the government also space in our space program and uh, scientists at universities like Stanford who were involved in studying it. And um, they wanted me to, to travel to New Mexico, you know, to check it out. And so I was still a disbeliever at this point, but it, it took about a year for my, um, to, you know, to understand that, wow, our government is doing this. They have been doing this. And these people are top rated scientists I met a Nobel Prize winning chemist, um, Carrie Mullis, who had an experience and um, was a believer. So my worldview shifted from um, I'm, I'm agnostic now, which means that I just don't know. You know, I'm really like I'm like everyone else. I'm like, oh, you're kidding. This is this is real, you know. And um, but now I have a great, uh, you know, I have a lot of research and data that that shows patterns. And so, yeah, so that's that's correct. That's how it all happened. So we, we should, you, you mentioned the trip to New Mexico. We could say, say a little bit more about that. So one of the really uh, pivotal people in your book is a person identified as Tyler. Uh, the, nick, the nickname is based or the pseudonym is based on Tyler Durden from Fight Club because you do not talk about Fight Club. You do not talk about Invisible College. Uh, he's a guy with an, uh, kind of an aerospace background, science aerospace, mission control kind of background. And he does want you to go to New Mexico. And not Roswell. He wants you to go some someplace else, and he wants you to go blindfolded. Um, maybe you yes. can say a little bit about what happened on that particular trip. So this is a um, an amazing scientist that I met who is in um, the space force and um, had been part of the space shuttle program um, uh, when that was going, and is a mission controller. And I'd been conversing with him for about a year and a half. And he said, you you actually, I can tell you, don't believe. You may believe in it as a psychological phenomena, but you do not believe in it as a physical phenomena. And I'm going to give you some physical proof if you'll go to this place with me. And he was referencing these places in New Mexico in the 1940s where these 
<laughs> I know it sounds crazy with these flying saucers, spacecraft, whatever they are, uh, crashed. Uh, so the alleged the story goes okay, and so I I did not actually want to go. Um, but finally, I was convinced as long as I could bring a friend of mine. And a friend of mine is Dr. Gary Nolan at Stanford University. And he, uh, at, at the time, as you said, we couldn't actually use their full their real names. So I use pseudonyms. Um, but now he's come out as, as the person in my book and his name is Gary. And uh, in the book, I called him James. So I said, I'll go to this place, but I'm bringing this this friend of mine. So we we all went out there and we did have to be blindfolded because it was um, a secure location owned by the government. Um, and, uh, you know, we went out there to look for this debris. Now, I went out there not as a believer, but as a person who was really amazed that these people were believing because they were so intelligent and had such amazing uh, scientific background. So it was part of what I do as a professor, as a research professor, to kind of engage with people who believe things that for which I think we don't have evidence. And that's what I was trying to do. Uh, <laughs> and so they were trying to show me that they have evidence is basically what was what was going on there. So yeah, so we started off in, in New Mexico. That's where my book begins. And we kind of go on this trip hmm. of how they believe and how people believe in this. Right. We should say that in New Mexico, you saw stuff that well, I mean, I think it's fair to say you've never seen anything quite like it, but you saw materials that were not recognizable to you. Yeah, I tell the whole story about it, in fact. And my editor, this is a book published by Oxford University Press, by the way. So my editor was saying, this is wild, Diane. Are you sure you want to say these things? And I said, listen, this is exactly what happened. And we got stopped at the air airport. Uh, Tyler said we, we would be stopped. Um, and, uh, Gary was, was held this stuff. So we spent two days finding this stuff. We found it, um, by the way, there was a lot of rubble that covered the whole area and the rubble covered the area. This is something that my editor said, why would the government put a bunch of tin cans out in the middle of nowhere in the 1950s? And I said, listen, I know it sounds crazy, but this is exactly what was out there. And so we have to report it because it's data and that's what researchers do. You know, we just follow the data, even if it seems ridiculous. But uh, later, it seems now plausible. So, uh, you know, in 2023, it's plausible. In 2016, when we went, it it was not. I mean, it was like kind of sci-fi. So that just shows you how fast things are going these days in terms of belief structures. So, you know, you, you um, you've kind of referenced this a couple of times already, but um, there's always been kind of a stigma uh, attached to believing in this kind of stuff. Um, you know, you get lumped in with a fox, spooky Mulder, um, who, of course, from the point of view of the X-Files, is correct. <laughs> so it's not like he believes in stuff that he's wrong about. Uh, but you get lumped in that way. And some of that is just sort of how people are. But there's also... Uh, I think it's fair to say, correct me if I'm wrong, part of Project Blue Book, part of whatever these government programs are, is not only about the research into and suppression of information about these things, but also about discrediting people who actually do know quite a bit about them. Um, and and so, I mean, if in fact you get stigmatized or somebody gets stigmatized, sometimes it's not an accident. That's the way it's supposed to work. Sadly, that has been the case. I'm hoping that's not the case now. But if you do look at the history of that, um, you look at people like um, uh, McDou uh, Douglas, who was uh, who had done this in, you know, he's part of actually Project Blue Book peripherally. And um, he went through a, a character assassination, I guess you'd call it. And then John Mack, right? In, the Har um, Harvard uh, 
Yeah, he was a Harvard researcher, seemingly like above this type of thing, but his own university uh, also um, investigated what he was doing. And so he won a case against them. And and it's sad that this is the case. Uh, This is this is okay now. We can talk about this now and and study it. Uh, And lots of people, uh, people on your show, obviously, I'm not the only one, are professors and we're doing research. And you know, I have not, except for, well, let's say previous to what Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal did in 2017, which was to out the government programs. Prior to that, I'd go to conferences and, you know, and I'm a full, I was a full professor at the time. So you can't actually get any higher than that in terms of research. And, you know, you can't get promoted higher than that. So my research was already sound, but I still had people saying, you sure were gullible, you know, and I'm, and I'm saying, I resent that because I I actually did research. This is good research. And it was fact checked and published and peer reviewed. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, but the but the climate has completely changed. Now, do you think the climate has completely changed because, you know, maybe starting with that New York Times report and the stuff that followed it. Um, is that what changed the climate? Or is there something going on at a more finely grained and possibly subtle level? Okay, it's um, it's another thing going on, but it's definitely not subtle. And it's that it, in the past, it was Russia and the United States that had the viable space program. So we were the ones that put people up into space. People see things up in space. Okay. Uh, there's lots of equipment up in space that can see things as well. So now as other countries create viable space programs, they will also be seeing things in space. So I believe that what's happening is that where we could have, you know, in the past kept a tight lid on what was being seen, that's not the case now. And we do have non-allies that are beginning to see what's going on up there too. So I, I I can barely do a, I can barely do a show these days without at some point mentioning AI. So I'm going to mention AI now because I know that you think that somehow or other the the coming online of chatbot GPT and some of the other similar entities uh, may play some kind of a role in, in everything that we're talking about. Although I'm not sure I totally know what role it is that you think they play. Oh, absolutely. It's going to change the game entirely. So early on, I read um, almost all the work of Stephen K. I mean, Stephen Dick, he is a NASA historian, and he's not actually well known among uh, the general population. But, but people who do research know his work. It's uh, he was the he started uh, astrobiology or he's one of the founders of astrobiology, which is this search for, you know, biological life on other planets um, in, you know, the uh you know, in the universe. <laughs> and and so he was one of the first to basically talk about how, when, you know, say we meet ET, it's going to be through their technology most likely, or they are technological because that's how, you know, if it's a carbon-based type being, that's how they're going to get through the universe, right? Because um, of the, the constraints that human biology has and presents or just biology in general. So um, it would be technology. Now, what's what's going to happen? I think we can get a good idea of what's going to happen with AI by looking at what's happening with um, non-human intelligence here on Earth, terrestrial intelligence. And we're talking about whales and, you know, things that already have languages, uh, animal communities that we know already have languages, but we haven't been able to crack the code of that. So AI is expert at doing that. We just have to give it the a data set of, say, whale languages, which are clicks and things like that. And then what it does is it's going to find the patterns at 
an, a rate that we can't do. So maybe it'll take us 30 years. It'll take AI maybe an hour to figure that out. So, th so that's how AI is going to change the game. Because what we're doing is we're recording things in space. We're recording techno signatures and things like that. All of that data is now going to go into different AIs that different people, uh, different communities of people, maybe internationally, um, you know, I hope this is an international effort and that we agree, you know, to do these things, but um, together. Uh, but that's how AI is going to change the game. So I would be remiss. We're going to run out of time here and I, I could do a whole show with you. I can tell. But um, but I would be I haven't really asked you any religion questions so far. And that's sort of your, your area of study. So, I mean, we should just sort of say that, you know, I mean, as you s mentioned in your earlier research, you found just a lot of these kinds of descriptions embedded in, you know, a French nun in the 1800s being visited by orbs in her cell and and stuff like that. But there's also a way in which as we get a little bit more into that 19th century, we start to see a way in which um, some of the millenarian movements that are coming on online, groups like the Millerites, who you know think that uh, Jesus Christ is going to return uh, in 1844 or something, the more that goes on, there's also it begins to be maybe a little bit of a fusion uh, of this uh, idea that maybe deliverance or rapture or change may appear in the form of a spaceship. So I don't know, just talk a little bit about how your research into religion and the stuff that you now know about aerial phenomena, how did those two mesh together for you? Okay, so already in, you know, with the Kenneth Arnold sighting in the 1947, um, when he cited what he called flying plates that became flying saucers, uh, people were already identifying this, at least in the United States, as an like the auger of the apocalypse, right? They were already kind of folding this into a religious narrative of end times. And so as a scholar of religion, we study things like that. Like, how do people believe, you know, a lot of, first off, people have believed in the end times for a very long period of time. Like, it's even a pre-Christian belief in Judaism, you know, that there's an apocalypse on the horizon. It's going to happen very soon. So, so this kind of urgency that people have, you know, we have to look at history in order to kind of um, tame that or tame that urgency so people don't get you know, upset. And, and so that that's one way to look at it, but also know that there are religions that do believe that the flying saucer is going to be their salvation, like the nation of Islam. Um, this is a belief within the nation of Islam and it was pre 1947. So, and you also have to understand that religions also are there. They have variations. You know, people ask me, how will people in religions feel about this? And I always say, well, which religion are you talking about? Because some religions already have a belief in ET and there are even in indigenous cultures who don't make a distinction between religion and secular society in which they have belief structures that they've already made contact. So, you know, we have to kind of, um, we have to, we have to be more nuanced in our understanding of, of this specific type of belief in contact. Right. And so, I mean, we should say that there were the, in the 1950s, the so-called flying saucer cults. I was always kind of fascinated by one of them. I think it was in Chicago, very small group, but they believed that they were oh, going to, they yeah. were, they were going to be, they're going to be taken yeah. up. The thing that always got me about them was somehow or other they'd been told or thought they'd been told that they couldn't bring earth metal onto the spacecraft. And so they removed the eyelets of their shoes and their metal zippers and stuff uh, because they wouldn't work, which I feel bad because then it didn't happen and they had to like walk home in the dark with no zipper. But uh, but so that there was this that kind of stuff around. How, how do you see the translation of that into 2023? I mean, it seems like, you know, with all the stuff that we just went through with the balloons and everything, 
people were a little bit more, I don't think the balloons are UFOs, but people were more willing to fold that into a conversation they were having about stuff in the sky. So at the level of belief, faith, spirituality, how do you see this fitting into the, the present moment? This, this, what happened last week, I think, is something that we have to be very aware of and careful of because a lot of people were, you know, I look back at, um, in our own history in the United States, the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast where people were panicked because of that. Um, and in the same way, people were panicked. All right. So I got a lot of phone calls from very rational people professionals who wanted to know what is it diana what's going on and i just say no listen it's not <laughs> it's not et and it you know listen if we were if it was the kinds that like pilot see we wouldn't have be able to like shoot them down um so it's not it's not an et as you know it's been reported and it's most likely just something that we call on planet it's ours and so i think that the um reticence of the government to talk about it which they probably had a good reason for it because it's in our airspace and, you know, we have tensions with China and that type of thing. So to understand that the government can't actually tell us a lot of things because of national security. Um, when I was chair of my department, you know, we had certain times when we couldn't say we had a threat of, you know, a school shooting, but it's not credible. So we didn't say anything, you know. And so, you know, people who are in charge of a, a good, a big organization, they have a lot of pressure to to talk about things and be transparent when it's not the best thing to do at the time. So um, I think that on both sides of the fence here from the government's point, they have to understand that there's panic now because people do believe in UFOs and the more people, let's put it that way, um, and we're getting into like a lot more people. And then from the people standpoint, we need more like people like me and people like Greg, who's coming up after me, you know, basically talking about uh, let's be, you know, let's let's not panic. I mean, this is not most likely the least plausible explanation for what's happening. And I think that's what we have to understand. All right. There's so much more to say, but uh, we do have to get ready for Greg, as you say. Uh, I want to thank you so much, uh, Diana Pasulka, for being with us. Uh, Diana Pasulka, research professor of religious studies at University of North Carolina, Wilmington, author of the book American Cosmic UFOs, Religion, Technology. Thanks for being with us, and we'll move on to another segment. Spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, home I am. In other words, baby, kiss me. Oh, I feel my heart was song and let me sing Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. 
Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that human affairs were being watched from the timeless worlds of space. No one could have dreamed we were being scrutinized as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few men even considered the possibility of life on other planets. And yet, across the gulf of space, minds immeasurably superior to ours regarded this earth with envious eyes. And slowly and surely, they drew their plans against us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was Richard Burton, by the way. All right, so um, don't panic. That's not that's not happening. Um, we have to say this ever since Orson Welles, really. Uh, so, uh, although I guess I guess hasn't it come out that there wasn't that big a panic about War of the Worlds that everybody kind of got what it really was, and this whole idea that there was massive panic uh, as a result of this one radio broadcast is in fact something of a fiction. Anyway. Stop babbling. Uh, introduce our next guest. Uh, Greg Gigian uh, is uh, a professor of history and bioethics uh, at Penn State, uh, someone who has also written about and researched this stuff, and I guess is known to Diana Pasolka based on what she said. So welcome to our conversation. Great. Thanks. Great being here. So one of the things that you've looked at is sort of how, you know, how official accounting for aerial phenomena changes over the decades, how public responses to that accounting changes over the decades. Um, Although going through this yet again, this time around, some things were different and some things were the same. I'm going to play for you uh, Admiral John Kirby, uh, uh, White House National Security Strategic Communications Coordinator from a press conference on February 13th. You're first going to hear a reporter ask him a question having to do with the balloons, and then you'll hear his answer. This is A1, Cat. My understanding is that uh, the top officials of the Pentagon, when asked explicitly if uh, they were ruling out any kind of extraterrestrial presence said they weren't ruling anything out. And yet at the beginning of today's briefing, albeit with her usual winning smile, uh, Ms. Jean-Pierre seemed to rule out any extraterrestrial activity. I don't think the American people need to worry about aliens with respect to these craft, period. I don't think there's any more that needs to be said there. So that's that. Um, I just react to that because, uh, you know, it's 2023. A lot of things have changed. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about those with Diana. We can talk some more about you. But in some ways, that sounds like an answer that might have been given out in, you know, 1980, 1990. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's an answer that could have been given in 1952. <laughs> so it's it's it is sort of the standard refrain. Um and you hear a little bit of exasperation in the voice, and that that too is pretty common. Again, uh, throughout the whole history of this phenomenon since the 1940s, 
um, you know, militaries, mostly military and military intelligence outfits and agencies worldwide, I should say, not just in the United States. They've been responsible for this stuff, right? Because the, the concern is always national security. And uh, by and large, I have to say all the evidence indicates that uh, whether you're talking about the United States or whether you're talking about the old Soviet Union or you're talking about uh, the United Kingdom, um, those those agencies and UFO desks came very quickly to the conclusion that um, this stuff wasn't uh, extraterrestrial in nature. Uh, and then the most important thing that mattered to them was whether or not it was a national security issue. And they generally concluded that wasn't the case. And so by and large, that kind of sense of exasperation you get is 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 a very, very common thing and has a long history to it. The only difference this time, I think, is that we do, in fact, have right um, officials and, and intelligence officials and spokespeople in government saying, uh, OK, this stuff isn't extraterrestrial, but our big concern here is actually national security. That's a little new. That's a little new. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about how you see or what sort of collective attitudes out there in the zeitgeist do you see uh, this kind of narrative bumping up against it and how how it's changed over time? I mean, we, we could make an argument that starting around 2017, at the end of 2017 with that New York Times story, there's a room for a paradigm shift. And, and certainly it was much harder to talk about it in a very dismissive way. But I also wonder if you see a more gradual change. And I'll just say that from my perspective anyway, starting in the 1960s with the Kennedy assassination, there's sort of a 10-year arc from the Kennedy assassination through Watergate, where you realize that we're not always told things, that there are all kinds of things going on, that things that should be easy to pin down, they ought to be easy to pin down, they're very difficult to pin down. Uh, and there are multiple comp competing versions of various events given up by the government. Uh, and that kind of leads even to, I mean, if you look at some of the early episodes of the X-Files that take place uh, in Washington, Washington, they look a lot like scenes from All the President's Men. I mean, right down to a character named Deep Throat uh, and and meeting in you know garages and stuff. And and I just think we've lived through an era of doubt in government veracity that didn't really start in 2017. It started much earlier. But how does that kind of affect how people think about UFOs? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I, I see a couple of different things going on that that definitely have. Uh, histories and legacies to them that are carryovers, but there's maybe different spins on them. So one thing is, is what's I think intriguing about what's happened since 2017 is not just this idea that it becomes more acceptable and, you know, more legitimate to, to openly talk about UFOs or again, uh, better use the term UAP as people are, are inclined to do as a way of sort of cleaning that issue up to some extent. Um, but in any event, this this it's not just simply that, that this stuff is acceptable to talk about. It's that what I think people forget is that from about the late 90s throughout the two, 2000 noughts and into the 2000 teens, the UFO phenomenon was pretty dead as a popular culture topic. It did not pop up in newspapers. You can, you can actually statistically, right, numerically track how that lack of interest gets reflected in the media. Um, so this thing was kind of uh, starting to look like it was dying out. And you had people in the UFO community who were longtime ufologists who were announcing this, this is it, it's over. 
The thing has run its course. We can't, we're not getting anything new and nobody's interested anymore. Um, and 2017, that article and then everything that's followed since has brought about this kind of revival, this renaissance. Now, what I would point out is this is also part of the history of the UFO phenomenon. It, it has, it goes through these, these peer, periods of time when there's this massive interest in it. And then you see some things slow down and then somebody announces it's the end of the UFO thing and then boom, something happens and then it returns. So this is one of the aspects of it. The other thing that you were reflecting on is also interesting. What, what I think connects the stuff that you're talking about that, that I certainly recall about, say, the 1960s and 1970s, um, which is this sort of cloak and dagger world where governments uh, keep secrets, governments are doing nefarious things behind our backs and people becoming aware of that, right? Um, which always didn't always have to, you know, uh, basically channel into conspiracy theories, but, but nonetheless led to a lot of that concern. Um, what connects that to what I think goes on today is, is really the, the obsession and concern with spying, with espionage. Um, you know, the Cold War is gone, but the Cold War is starting anew. <laughs> Russia is an enemy again. China is an enemy again, in some sense. And so what we have is now a different kind of, uh, slightly different kind of concern, whereas in the 60s and 70s, all this stuff was sort of colored with the trappings of, like I say, those sort of Cold War, John Le Carre kinds of, 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 of stories and, and images in our minds, combined with the threat of a nuclear holocaust, right? Now what we have is the world of drones, the world of commercial spying, but also the world of of these uh, competing economies, right, that are trying to uh, exercise some sort of hegemony over the world. And that all gets played against this sort of uh, rise of, of this, these new kinds of technologies of surveillance. So I think the spying thing to me is one of the elements that connects the situation today with what went on before. Right. And th then, then that also, it's a great point. And it also kind of connects to how government officials tend to see what their standards and practices should be, what their best standards and best practices should be with all this. Because if you have a powerful enemy, there's a real argument for not being particularly transparent about a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I think back to the, when Gary Powers was shot down um, and Eisenhower uh, basically lied. He later said that he really had never lied before in, in a situation like that, and he felt really horrible about it. Um, <laughs> I, I yeah. shudder, shudder to think what he would have thought about 2017 <laughs> forward, but, but uh, how horrible a president lied about something. But, um, <laughs> but, but there's this idea that, okay, we might have to conceal certain things. We might even have to dissemble. We might even have to sort of lay down some false trails because we have a very powerful enemy, and we're trying to protect the very people that we're kind of deceiving from that enemy. Uh, mm -hmm. And we also have to conceal some of the stuff that we're doing because it's very similar to the stuff that our enemy's doing. So, uh, you know, it seems like it may be that sort of 2017 to 2022 is more of a blip and they, no wonder Kirby's going back to, all right, that's all we're going to say about this. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. because, yeah. because maybe from their point of view, it really is not a good idea to be talking about this stuff. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's spot on. I mean, that's my sort of uh, sense of things, right? Um, you, you are always going to have this issue, and this is why, for instance, there is a uh, a tension. And again, that's always been there, but there's a tension here between, for instance, the 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 kind of you know uh, military and intelligence community uh, folks who are now looking into this UAP thing and then the academic world where people are now starting to talk openly of conducting research and get trying to get funding for projects and the Galileo project out at, at Harvard and things like this. Folks who operate under the principle, as I do, of transparency, right? Um, and I, I get it. I get why the, the military and intelligence folks have to be secretive, have to keep information from the public. Uh, there's, there's, there's some sense to it, right? But these two things are kind of at, at odds. And so the, here's, that's one of the points where you see a little bit of, more than a little bit of conflict and tension. Right. So we should also just talk a little bit about the American psychology because, um, you know, Diana was saying, and you probably had the same experience, that in the latest wave of press conferences and and revelations of, uh, about UAPs, um, you know, people start like, if, if you're if they're your friend, they probably said, "Let's call Greg and find out what what, what is yeah. this thing really." Um, and and it does have something to do. If this were a rumor about mole people burrow, burrowing up from underground or something, it just wouldn't be the same, right? We've been trained our whole lives to look up to the sky. I mean, I I grew up in the Cold War era. I grew up when there was you know a lot of talk about nuclear threat and nuclear obliteration and what are we going to do in our elementary school when that happens and yeah, stuff. Yeah. So. I mean, I guess psychologically, we're sort of primed to worry about all this, right? Yeah, yeah, we're primed. We're primed to 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 go there, and in fact, that to me is from the, from the historian standpoint was one of the things I wanted to figure out and understand when I began sort of working on the history of this stuff, and I that's why I I wanted to go back and you know burrow deep into that period right right after 1947 after that famous flight of Kenneth Arnold where the the term flying saucer was born and to look at at how people talked about this stuff then and what i think is really fascinating about those first few years is that is that aliens do not come up terribly much there's a few people who throw that out as a possibility but everybody is really mostly talking about that that this is either some sort of you know optical illusion or what it is is this these things are some sort of technology of the United States or the Soviet Union or maybe even both right that was the place you went to that was that was the framework that seemed the most obvious place to go and so that's really what debate tended to be about um, it's really only once you get to around 1950, when you have some people now and lay out a whole kind of, if you will, script for what the alien scenario looks like, and that there's government people who not, who think it's this, and they're not keep they're not sharing that information with us. Once you have that kind of almost drama and plot laid out for people, that starts to take hold. And you can absolutely track it throughout the media. And in fact, you can not only track it throughout the media in the United States, you can track it throughout the media throughout the entire world. Because 
you know, newswire services like the AP and all start to cover these books, start to then, these things can get translated in installments in newspapers throughout the world. And so you can see the way in which that's, that storyline starts to travel. And once that's out there, that becomes now one of now the other alternatives that people turn to. Yeah, I've always had this theory that there's sort of a narrative counter narrative thing that that always goes on, um, and and in particular that it's fueled sometimes by our more atavistic leanings, uh, our sense that you know that science maybe doesn't explain everything. Uh, and I think about it. I, I was thinking about it in the '70s a lot because. Uh, Philip Reef had written this book, The Triumph of, of the Therapeutic, mm. in which he he talked about the fact that sort of the therapeutic kind of Freudian um, uh, sort of psychomedical model had replaced religion and spirituality. And and he's like writing that, and like the biggest hit in the movie theaters is The Exorcist, where this little girl has got all these problems, and uh, her mother keeps taking her to like for spinal taps and neurology and psychiatry, and everybody in the audience is going, "Are you crazy? She needs an exorcist. Don't take her to a psychiatrist." <laughs> um, and there's a little bit of that here. Right? Right. That, you know, even that UAP thing, well, the, the U is unexplained. There's the implication. We just don't have an explanation for it. But there's a scientific explanation for this. Um, and yeah, you know, but like in the 90s, the X-Files was a really big hit. It had no well-known stars in it. <laughs> and it stayed on the air for a really long time because I think there's always the scientific narrative that we know what's going on and the things that we don't know we're going to figure out and so don't get bogged down in a lot of kooky stuff and it's bumping up all of, uh, against something that's kind of priced in I think to human nature which is yeah but what if it's not mm, yeah yeah I think you're right I mean I think I think what it is is your in a way one way of putting it is the the, the two sides need one another <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean I mean you know, if if it weren't for the 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 skeptics, uh, uh, many true believers uh, wouldn't have something to butt up against it, and something to actually press them to sort of revisit a lot of their working assumptions and to speculate in new directions. And the same goes through the other way, right? Uh, what, what would the skeptics do without without true believers? So I, those communities, I think, um, in some sense, I don't know that they would view it this way, but those communities, in a sense, need, require one another and are sort of in fact that you i guess you could probably say they 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 presume the other one uh as they sort of develop over time yeah what a great answer thank you so much for that and thank you so much for talking to us greg giggy and uh, professor of history at in bioethics at penn state we'll take a little break we're going to come back we're going to tell you another possible reason why people start seeing these things at certain times Chances of anything coming from Mars are millions to one, but still they come. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. 
All right. Thanks so much to Cat Pastor, our technical producer today, and to senior producer Lily Tyson, who's also the producer of this episode. Is this your third UFO, your third UFO episode? All right. So um, joining us now, because, okay, I have to sort of say something about this, which is this stuff comes up from time to time. I remember one of my college friends who I'm still in touch with one time, a couple years ago, he wrote to me, he goes, you know, I just come across the same Yiddish expression in two completely different sources over the past or past two or three days. I never heard this thing before, and now I've heard it twice in three days. And I always go, oh, no, that's the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, at which point people start to give me strange looks. But the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is the idea, basically, that once you're aware of something, then you're going to notice it more often. That's the like, simplest, simplest way of putting it. But the person who knows way more uh, is Carly Leonard, assistant professor of psychology at the University of Colorado at Denver. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Um, I have to say, I don't know much about UFOs, but I was a huge X-Files fan growing up, so I'm excited to hear you then, all talking about that. Then you do know a lot about UFOs. <laughs> um, so talk about this uh, frequency bias or frequency illusion. That's another way that this is described. Explain what's happening here. We, we don't see something, and then we see a lot of something, but what's really happening? Sure. I think the easiest way to think about it is that there's basically two aspects of how the human mind works. Um, One is that we can't help but have selective attention. We just can't be aware of everything that's out there all at once. And that means that a bunch of mechanisms have to help us filter out things and determine what does make it to our awareness. And it turns out that things that we've recently looked for or things that we um, even recently thought about just make it into our awareness more often. Yeah, it's almost sort of a William Jamesian argument, right? This idea of sort of constructs or or mental frameworks for processing reality. Reality is, as you say, big and complex and just, uh, it's a fire hose. So if we're going to drink from the fire hose, we're going to have to find a way to do it so we we get some hydration as opposed to giving ourselves a concussion. So you're saying our brain kind of does this without even necessarily telling us it's doing it? Yeah, I think there's different factors that lead to the end result that we are only aware of some things and you know some of them we can consciously decide that we're going to search for certain things in our world around us um, the classic example is you probably weren't thinking about the feeling of the seat that you're sitting on right now but if you choose to you can become aware of that um, but a lot of other factors that determine what we're aware of are less intentional and I think those are the ones that tend to lead to this frequency effect. You're making me laugh because years and years and years ago, there was a Peanuts cartoon where one of the Linus, I think, t- was talking to Charlie Brown. He says, I've become aware of my tongue. And he's just like aware of his tongue and it's really upsetting him. And then Charlie Brown screams, you know, because now he's become aware of his tongue. So let's hear uh, President Biden trying to explain uh, some of this in a similar way. This is C1 gap. We don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. So in a way, he's talking about something that's almost metonymy or synecdoche for for what you're talking about, right? Like we all have radars. And if we tune the radar a little bit differently, we're going to see different things. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, a lot of times people like to use a metaphor that the human mind is this processing machine. And I think it's very similar where you make these adjustments to make certain features of the world more apparent. In this case, I think it was that they changed their detector so that things that were slow moving 
made it to the operator's awareness, whereas before they were mostly focused on things that could be aircraft and moving faster. So yeah, they've changed their settings, just like you might change your settings in a situation where you realize something important was getting by you. Right. And so, yes. And and so, yeah, you said uh, processing machine. We could also say sort of rational actor, too. We think of ourselves as rational actors. But, I mean, you could apply to something to this like this to glucose intolerance, right? Like, I, I never heard of glucose <laughs> intolerance for decades and decades and decades. And it seems now each younger generation has more people who have glucose intolerance, uh, which is probably not true. But what is true is a shift in awareness and thinking, right? There's a, a framing of that that's different from what existed 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, exactly. And I think you bring up a good point. This is very relevant to medical and clinical diagnoses where it's unlikely, although I suppose possible that there is a change in a condition. But once it's on the radar of medical professionals, they might be more likely to notice it, detect it, diagnose it, um, treat it, that type of thing. Which also brings up the question, well, I mean, that interferes with our ability to be rational actors, right? If we if our perceptions are kind of tilted by these sudden forms of awareness, then you know we're we're not being maybe as even-handed and rational as we tell our, tell ourselves we're being. I don't know. Is there is there a way to correct for that, or are we just sort of doomed uh, to to have that particular cognitive bias? Right. I think you know evolution has helped us be has you know on average helped people succeed, but that doesn't mean that. We are fully rational actors. Um, I think we like to think we're being rational, but we do have biases. Um, and most of the time, I think they're relatively harmless. You know, the fact that you notice things that are relevant to what you've been thinking about, this may be a good thing, but certainly there could be situations where you can go down a spiral where this this frequency illusion, you start noticing things, you kind of wind up in a cycle where you confirm maybe a delusion about what might be going on. And then from there, you find more evidence to support it. So I think there can be um, some downside, but usually I think it's not so bad. Right. No, yeah. Some of the denialist kind of movements, whether it's I mean, we've been through one here with Sandy Hook where people have done almost exactly that. They've started piecing evidence together to prove something that's really contrary to truth. But for the most part, yes, when I bought a new green Subaru with a color green that I really liked, it turned out that the next day, half of humanity went off and went out and bought the Subarus in the same color. I was driving around saying, oh, my God, what's happened here? But in fact, they were always out there. Um, I just hadn't noticed them before. All right. This has been fun. Carly Leonard, assistant professor of psychology uh, at the University of Colorado, Denver, also an X-Files completist. Always good to meet another one. Uh, We're going to say goodbye now, but thanks very much for listening to everything we've talked about today. Thank you for having me. Can you imagine how much I love you? The more I see you as years go by, I know the only one for me can only be you. My arms won't free you, my heart won't try, my arms won't.